Welcome to the Signature Leadership Series podcast by Knowledge Hook, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders from around the world. I'm your host, Jennifer Adams. I'm a former superintendent of a large, highly diverse, publicly funded school district in Ottawa, Canada. I was fortunate throughout my career to have many great opportunities for professional learning, and I'd like to extend that opportunity to you. Working together with Knowledge Hook, a Canadian digital math company, we are continuing to support thought leadership in education. Today's podcast is part two of a two-part series with Dylan William, Professor Emeritus of Education Assessment at University College London. If you missed the first part, you're welcome to access it on the Knowledge Hook Signature Leadership Series portal. In this episode, Dylan goes a little deeper talking to us about a range of formative assessment techniques and how district and school leaders can support teachers to use these practices in their classrooms and in remote learning environments. Dylan, welcome and uh, really thrilled to have you here. Great to be here. Dylan, on part one of our series, you introduced us to the idea of five strategies for formative assessment. Maybe to start off this second part of the podcast series, you could repeat these five strategies because today we're going to dive much more deeply into each one of them. Sure. Well, I think the first thing to say is that we make a careful distinction between strategies and techniques. So the idea is the five strategies are always good things for teachers to be doing. And so they're, they're what we call no-brainers. However, implementing these strategies requires careful thought about what subject you're teaching, what kind of age of students you're teaching. So these are things we call techniques. So what we... What we suggest to teachers is the strategies are always good things to be doing. The techniques, you need to decide for yourself. It's your professional judgment about whether those techniques are the right way to incorporate these strategies into your practice. And so the sequence is, number one, clarifying, sharing, understanding, learning intentions. The idea is that you as the teacher should be clear about where it is that you hope your students are going to get to. The second is then eliciting evidence. Are we getting evidence from our students about what sense they're making of our teaching? The third one is providing feedback that moves learning forward. In other words, feedback that is looking forward rather than back. The fourth is activating students or learners as learning resources for one another, helping them uh, help each other. And the fifth one is activating learners as owners of their own learning. The idea that learners should become more active in the management of their own learning. And those five strategies actually, we think, form a minimum set of the highest impact, lowest cost strategies for improving education in general, and also for closing uh, achievement gaps. Dylan, I really like how you make the distinction between strategies and techniques um, because there's always kind of this tension back and forth between the classroom teachers that are, you know, in the front lines working with children and seeing how they're reacting every day and the academics that are doing research and are, you know, obviously not in the classroom in the same way that the teachers are. But I think that distinction between strategies and techniques is a good one because the strategies are research-based. That's where the academics are going in and they're looking at 
at, you know, what are the what are the the strategies that have the highest impact when we look at large groups of children across different uh, geographic areas. But when we get down into strategies, that's or techniques, that's where that teacher with their professional um, their professional judgment decides when and how to use those strategies. Tell us a little bit more about that. In one of our earliest research projects, we were working with a group of teachers in England, and we were very well aware that, the, as you said, the research evidence suggested this was a pro- powerful professional development focus. But we weren't sure what it would look like in classrooms. So we invited a group of 24 math and science teachers to work with us. And I think to begin with, they thought we were operating a perverted model of discovery learning where we knew what we wanted them to do, but we weren't going to tell them so they could discover it for themselves. And after about three months of working together, they realized that we did not know what this would look like in their classroom. It was up to them. And I think giving the teachers that choice about what to work on was empowering for the teachers. It gave them a sense of control. But it's also important to recognize that no research idea, no educational proposal can be implemented in a classroom in the way intended by its inventor. Teachers need to make adjustments to make them work for their students, for their context. And I think too many educational reforms, in Lawrence Stenhouse's memorable phrase, treat teachers as intellectual navvies, you know, who are told where to dig, but not why. And because you can't actually implement these things in the way intended by the inventors. Teachers have to be involved in this process. And this has been a very strong message from Lawrence Stenhouse in the UK, Hilda Tarber in North America. The idea is that teachers have to be involved in this work because only they can make it make sense in their own context. That's such a good reminder for superintendents and and leaders of education systems because, um, like you said, up at the policy level, we have to remember that those policies are are broad statements. They're based on what the best academic research is saying to do, but we have to be really respectful of the fact that um, teachers need to have that runway to be able to do things the way that make the most sense in in their schools. Absolutely. And it's a failure to understand that that leads to people's frustrations. They talk about a fidelity of implementation in research studies. Well, I think fidelity of implementation is a cop-out. This is researchers blaming teachers for not doing what the researchers wanted the teachers to do in the first place. You have to take the teachers on board because they're the ones that are going to have to make it work. And classrooms are more complex than most researchers like to admit. And therefore, there are good reasons why certain things can't be implemented in the way that it's intended. And and therefore, we have to understand that when teachers take on research, this is not them slavishly following directions from somebody else. When teachers take on research and use it in their own classrooms, they are creating knowledge, albeit of a distinct and local kind. And I think recognizing that is going to be really important for superintendents in terms of having the right kind of balance of partnership. You do need to focus teachers' work so they don't reinvent the wheel or spend lots of time doing things like learning styles or brain gym that don't help students learn. But you also have to recognize that teachers have to be actively engaged in making sense of this in their own practice. Kind of circles back to what we talked about in the first podcast where it's this... um, 
efficiency of the roles that each of the roles in the education system have uh, a place to play and a part to play. And that when those things work well together, when the district leaders and the school leaders work well with their teachers and get that balance right, it's really beneficial for students. One of the things that you said that you were going to talk about today is questioning. And that relates back to uh, the overall strategy of eliciting evidence. Talk to us about that. Well, the first thing to say is that we call this strategy eliciting evidence because questioning is just one way to elicit evidence. And as I suggested in the first podcast, uh, making statements can be helpful. But the other thing is noticing. Teachers get a lot of information about students' ideas just by looking at what they're doing. So this broad term Eliciting evidence includes all the ways that teachers gain evidence about what's going on in students' heads. But there's, a, there's no doubt in my mind that there's a special place for questioning. Um, there's a lot of unhelpful advice given to teachers. One of the things is, is you should ask um, open rather than closed questions. I, I don't think it's that simple. So, for example, you know, is a square a trapezoid is a pretty closed question. Um, you know, it's about as close a question can get. There are two answers, yes and no. But what is interesting is it's revealing in terms of students' conceptions. So I think we have to get away from the idea that um, open questions are good and closed questions are bad and focus on what we're trying to do with our questions. And I think there are two good reasons to ask a question. One is to cause students to think, and the other is to create data that helps the teacher make a better decision about what to do next. And so there's nothing wrong with asking closed questions if you know what you're looking for. If there's a specific misconception that a student might have, then there's nothing wrong in asking the question that goes straight to that misconception. But I think a lot of the time we should also be focusing on questions that make children think and therefore um, designing the questions appropriately. You gave a really interesting example last time about um, purposely creating multiple choice questions, particularly in mathematics, where you purposely put the answers as uh, misconception. Right. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, there are basically two ways, we think, of making really high quality multiple choice questions. And I th perhaps I should start out by saying why I'm such a fan of multiple choice questions, because they are really quite discredited amongst, in many people's eyes, um, as measures for summative assessments. And, and I think that that's, that that's quite right. I think multiple choice questions can't assess all the things we want to assess. So I think they are probably given too much prominence in um, high stakes assessments. I think they're not given enough um, emphasis in classroom practice. Because if you have 25 or 30 students in a classroom and you ask them all to write their solutions to a math problem on their mini whiteboards and hold them up, you have given yourself a very complex data processing task. Making sense of those idiosyncratic responses is going to be really difficult and you're going to have a dead spot in the classroom where the children might lose focus, you might lose control of the class. So I like multiple choice questions because they pre-process the teacher's data processing task. You can just quickly see who's choosing A, who's choosing B, who's choosing C, and then make a quick decision about whether to, for example, move on, go back and reteach, pair the students up to actually have a conversation. So I think the multiple choice questions can be very powerful as quick checks on understanding. And there are two ways, I think, particularly in math, 
that make these questions better. The first one is, as you mentioned, what Philip Sadler calls distracted-driven multiple-choice questions. The idea is we start from the misconceptions that children have and write the questions around those. So one of the things we found very productive um, at a district level is to get teachers identifying misconceptions that children have around a particular concept. One good example would be to give them two sets of numbers. One set has six numbers in it. The second set has the same six numbers with an added zero. And the question then is, what can you say about these two sets? They have the same mean, they have different means, or it depends whether you choose to count the zero. And what is interesting is that a lot of children think that whether you include the zero is a matter of discretion. And of course, in the calculation of the mean, it's not. And what I like about that question is it's a multiple choice question, but it's assessing higher order thinking. You ask most teachers to write a question on assessing the mean, they would just give students a set of numbers and say, what is the mean of these numbers? But by actually getting students to think about what is the definition of the mean, you can actually ask higher order questions in a way that gives you quick, actionable information. So the whole idea of starting from the misconceptions and then writing the answers that the student with the misconception would choose, and then, and only then, writing the question and the correct solution can be very powerful. The other way we can make questions much more powerful is to have multiple correct answers. So for example, if we're teaching Pythagoras' rule, and we might give children um, six triangles um, labeled in different ways. And we might say, in which of these triangles is A squared plus B squared equal to C squared? And many children think it's all of them. And many children think it's none of them. Many think it's just one of them. And so the important point is you have multiple correct answers. And the reason that's so valuable is it minimizes the likelihood that children get the right responses by guesswork. If you have five options in a multiple choice question, then the odds of getting the right combination by guesswork, the right answer by guesswork, is just 20%. But if you have five options with more than one, possibly more than one correct option, then each student has to make a separate decision about the first, the second, the third, the fourth, and the fifth response. So you have two times two times two times two times two different possible combinations. You've got 32 different choices a student could make. And therefore, if the students are giving you the correct response, when there's 32 choices they could have made, that's a pretty good indication they get it. So these two ideas of uh, distracted-driven multiple-choice questions and multiple correct responses give you a way of generating questions where the correct answer almost always signifies the correct thinking. It doesn't guarantee it. Sometimes students are going to get the right answer for the wrong reason. But the idea is we work towards the, uh, the goal of if the children get the right answer, it's a pretty good bet they've got it because the question is so well designed to do just that. Dylan, it's interesting what you're saying. It makes me think of two things. First of all, I think many of us, as certainly as uh, senior education leaders, have kind of assumed that there's a hierarchy in questions, that open-ended questions are good and multiple choice questions are bad, and or a kind of a, a binary decision on that. And I think what you're saying is that it's really the quality of the construction of how those questions are done either can be appropriate and can really help 
the teacher better understand where the students are experiencing difficulties in their mathematics. Right. And it goes back to a deeper point, which is people often focus on what they call data-driven decision-making, which sounds good, but I'm actually not a big fan of that. I'm a much stronger advocate of what I call decision-driven data collection. So in other words, the teacher needs to decide what decision do I need to take and then decide what evidence will help me make this decision in a smarter way. So I think shifting away from just collecting data for the sake of it towards starting with the decision you need to take and you know, in a typical math lesson, halfway through it might be, do I need to go on or, can I, uh, or, or do I need to repeat this instruction or do I need to take a, a detour of some kind? And if we start from the decisions that people need to make, then the questioning, I think, becomes much more straightforward because the question needs to support the decision. We've talked about uh, multiple choice questions. Any other ones that you would like to highlight? Well, I think the important thing is just to think about what kind of evidence you need. And so, yes, multiple choice questions can be great if you can reduce it to a multiple choice format. Um, if you can't, then we often suggest that students write things on many whiteboards. That can be very helpful as well. And if there's a longer question, rather than actually create a potential for some dead space in a lesson, we actually quite like these idea, this idea of, hinge, of um, exit ticket questions or exit pass questions, where you get students to write um, their solutions on a small index card, and they hand it in at the end of the lesson, and the teacher can then make sense of where to start the next lesson. And you know, typically, you know, if the, if the students answer well, you move on. If they answer badly, you, you teach it again. Uh, but often what happens is that some of the students answer correctly and some of the students answer incorrectly. So a technique that a teacher could use would be to, um, to put two carefully selected responses on the document camera and project it to the whole class and ask the students to vote for one or the other. This works particularly well in online settings. So, you know, if you've got, if you've got an online class, you ask students to submit uh, responses to a question and then you can actually when you have some time to think, look at the responses, and then highlight two or three of them as ways of kicking off the next session by asking the students to vote for one, two, or three, because that tells you what sense they've made of the instruction. So I think this idea of decisions like, where do I start the next session, drive the questions in a much more helpful way than just saying, what data should I collect? You've reminded us about the fact that, of course, many, many teachers uh, in Canada and in the U.S. and right around the world are providing instruction in a remote learning environment. And, you know, many of them for the first time using that approach. And it's really interesting to hear that, you know, what can questions look like so that teachers have the opportunity to be able to see where students are in their learning and what their next steps are as teachers with that whole group and as well as with some others. Anything that you'd like to add to that? Well, I think there's one really important aspect of this. Uh, this is research goes back about uh, 20, 30 years, but it's been reinforced recently. One of the things you can do, particularly in an online environment, to find out what students are learning is to ask the students to write questions with correct solutions about what they've been studying. This is not asking students, do you have any questions? It is, if you wanted to test somebody on what we've just been doing, what questions would you ask? And it's been shown that question generation 
actually improves long-term learning better than just restudying the material you've been looking at. So there's another role for questions, particularly in a distance learning environment. Getting students to write questions on what they've been studying is actually one of the most powerful ways of promoting long-term retention. And that's so much fun when you're a school principal or a, a school superintendent and you're walking through classrooms and you're seeing not just the teacher generating questions, but you're seeing small groups of s- students working together and generating questions that are sometimes given to another group. And you see that interaction happening and the students creating their own. You can see that it takes learning completely to a different level. Absolutely. We're going to move on to the topic of feedback. And there's been such great research. I, you know, when I think of the teachers that I saw in classrooms when I was a superintendent, seeing the kinds of feedback that they would give uh, that and how that has evolved over the last number of years, really helpful to students and their learning. Tell us about that. Well, actually, I've become more and more confused by the research on feedback. Um, to begin with, I, I found some research studies that I thought were pretty clear, but you know, every research study has problems. And I've now become much more clear that focusing on the kind of feedback that we give is actually not particularly helpful. So teachers are often taught feedback should be fair, accurate, specific, timely, or whatever. And you know, those are generally quite good guidelines. But they're not actually supported by the research evidence. So it turns out that delayed feedback can often be more effective than immediate feedback. Why? Because it gives the students a chance to forget what they've been doing and therefore the feedback acts as a kind of restudy. Um, People say the feedback should be specific, but the danger is if the feedback is too specific, then it only helps the student correct the task they've been doing. It doesn't help them in the future. And the way I summarize that is by saying that that the purpose of feedback is to improve the student, not improve the work. And too often the feedback focuses more on putting right what's wrong with the piece of work the student handed in. So there's lots of things that teachers are told that I don't think is necessarily supported by the research evidence. But the biggest problem with almost all the feedback research is that it just doesn't take into account the relationship between the student and the teacher. Uh, Min Lee and Maria Ruiz Primo estimated that 75% of the published studies on feedback were conducted by psychology professors on their own students. And while that might be relevant in the context of laboratory work, I don't think it generalizes to K-12 education very easily. And every teacher knows the same feedback given to one student will make that student try harder, and to a very similar student will make that other student give up. So you you have to know your students. Know where to push, know where to back off, and your students have to believe in you. If, if they don't think that you know what you're talking about, if they don't think you have your, their best interests at heart, they're not going to invest the time they need to invest to take the feedback on board. So I become more and more convinced that, that what really matters with feedback is what students do with it. And we've been putting far too much effort into getting the right kind of feedback and not enough effort into making sure that students do something with the feedback. There's been a big debate about whether this is a, a, a real thing or not. Some people are saying, is it the new learning styles? And a number of experimental verifications have failed to uh, find the same effects that Carol Dweck found in her own work. And therefore, people have concluded that feedback, that, sorry, that mindset is not important. But the important thing for me is mindset depends on the context. The reason, the reason that mindset is so important is because with a growth mindset, students welcome feedback because it's a chance 
to direct their improvement. With a fixed mindset, feedback is unwelcome because it might show you you're not as smart as you thought you were. So whether a growth mindset is good or bad, I think is the wrong question. The important point is, can we use growth mindsets to get students more ready to accept and act on feedback? So it's getting the context right for this, getting the relationships right, getting the students to understand that feedback is the teacher's attempt to help them. And then I think we can worry less about getting the feedback perfect and more about making sure that there's time for the students to do something with the feedback and move their own learning forward. That was interesting what you said about you know, not having the feedback be too specific with the idea that that might just zero in on that one piece of work that the student is doing and they don't know how to move that forward. One of the things that I noticed teachers doing a really good job with was that they would give some specific feedback, but then they would talk about, so what are your next steps? And that concept of moving to what are your next steps was almost a way of um, asking the student how they would use that um, feedback in the next time that they were approaching uh, maybe a similar or a different problem. And I think that that helps the student be able to understand that this is more than just uh, a comment on this particular action that you were doing here, but how will you use it? And it's really asking the student to think about how will they use that information uh, in their next steps when they're moving forward in their learning. I estimate that in Canada, um, if you price teachers' time appropriately, um, about a billion dollars a year gets spent on feedback teachers giving students feedback, and nothing happens to it. So I say to teachers, if it's worth your while writing individual feedback on a piece of student's work, it's worthwhile taking class time for them to respond. So my general piece of advice is, don't ever give feedback to students unless the next time they're with you, they actually respond to that feedback in front of you. Uh, the other way to say this is that feedback should be more work for the recipient than the donor, but make sure that that feedback is, t- is taken on board. The only good feedback is that which is acted upon by students. So let's, let's close the loop. Let's make sure that the information that we're taking the time to give to our students gets used by the students. That's great advice. Let's move on to peer assessment. What do you think about peer assessment? The research on peer assessment is really quite clear now, but it's also very challenging. So for, for some people, it's just getting students together and giving feedback to each other. And that can be effective, but it's really quite hard to do that well. And so the, there's some studies by people like uh, the Johnson brothers and by Robert Slavin that have shown that really people have to be actively engaged. So the, the, one of the dangers of peer assessment and peer feedback and peer tutoring is if the group is too large, then it becomes a conversation between the highest achievers and the lowest achievers with the students in the middle missing out. Um, There can be a tendency for the students at the top end to give answers to the students at the lower end of the achievement range rather than helping them figure it out for themselves. And so it's, it's really quite difficult to get this right. And there's no doubt in my mind that we have to talk to our students about what good peer assessment looks like. So we have to model it. We have to give them practice in giving good feedback. Um, so one, ex- one ex- good example of this is 
a technique that's called two stars and a wish or stars and stares. The idea is that when a student gives feedback to another student, they say two positive things. I like that. I like that. And one helpfully critical piece, like, I wish you had done that. And what you can then do is after the students have had a chance to read these, collect in all the wishes. We often recommend using different colored post-it notes like green for the stars and, and pink for the wishes. And place all the wishes on a document camera or some other display technique. And then lead a whole class discussion about these comments. Was this a helpful comment to get? And even though these comments are anonymous, students have told us the fact that they knew the whole class was going to be discussing the comment that they gave on somebody else's work made them take it more seriously because nobody wanted a comment that they'd made described as unhelpful. But it also had the benefit of modeling to the whole class what kinds of comments were helpful. So I think the important thing to note is that peer assessment can work, but you need to work at it. You need to model it. You need to help students understand what makes for helpful feedback, what makes for less helpful feedback. And then it can be a very powerful process. In that way, students need to be taught the process, and, and that starts with modeling what that can look like. They also have to have a very clear understanding and a common understanding of what good work looks like. And so the teacher has to invest some time in being able to demonstrate what are the kinds of things that we would say, this would be an example of, of a, a really strong piece of work on this type of assignment. And then students are able to then provide feedback to their peers on what did they actually um, did they actually demonstrate uh, those competencies that are outlined in common for everyone? Absolutely, and I think this is where this strategy circles back into the uh, learning attention strategy because it's one of the benefits of peer feedback is it forces you to be clear about what involve what is involved in being good at this task. One of the things that we have seen, particularly in math is teachers going straight to rubrics as ways of helping students understand. And the problem with rubrics is that they don't have the same meaning for students as they do for teachers who are the experts in this domain. And so one of the things we suggest is that before you give students a, a rubric or a scoring guide, you actually give them some examples of pieces of work and ask the students, was this a good piece of work? Is this a less good piece of work? And once they've got them in some kind of rank order, then say, well, what's good about good ones? What makes it good? And then you can distill out of this some key precepts about what makes good work. But the important point is those precepts are grounded in actual examples of work and not just free floating as they would be if you just handed the students a rubric and said, this is what you need to do, get on with it. And that kind of leads us into the last uh, strategy, which is self-assessment. Tell us about that. In some ways, the idea of students as owners of their own learning is where all the other strategies lead. I often ask administrators, uh, do they observe teaching? And they mostly say yes. And I say, when you observe a teacher teaching a lesson, what's the first question they ask you at the end? And it's invariably, how did I do? And then I ask the administrators, what do you say in response to that question? And the most common response from administrators is, how do you think you did? And that's exactly what I do. 
And I'm not doing that to be coy. I'm doing that because if that person can give me a good answer about what was good and what was less good about that lesson, then my work here is done. That person is, in the psychological jargon, becoming a self-regulating learner. They know what they need to do and they can get on and do it. And I think that's the really important point here is that the purpose of feedback is to help the students become better self-regulating learners. Feedback should work towards making itself unnecessary in the future because then the students can give themselves their own feedback. Now, that's a, per, that's a goal, it's a, a council of perfection. But I think if we keep in mind the idea that this, all these strategies are designed to help the students become better owners of their own learning, focusing on students monitoring their own progress, then I think that all the other pieces fall into place. And often students don't know enough, but it's very simple techniques such as plus minus interesting. You know, you could ask students to complete a task and then say, write out on, you know, on three flip charts around the classroom or if it's online, you know, three sentences. What was easy about this work? What was difficult about this work? And what was interesting about this work? Um, just getting students to reflect on that process. Uh, teachers tell us that when they use that process, students become much more sharp and focused. So even if the self-assessments aren't accurate, they make the students more thoughtful. And so I was talking to a math teacher who said, um, my students used to say things like, I can't do quadratics. And the teacher would say, what can't you do about quadratics? And the student would say, I can't do any of it. And the teacher said to me, they now say things like, I can't do quadratics when there's a minus in front of the X squared. So what teachers report is that when they engage students in this process of self-assessment, they become clearer and sharper in asking for help, which helps the teacher uh, diagnose the difficulties much more precisely and saves a lot of time. Dylan, your comments on self, student self-assessment are really helpful, and it makes me think about student agency and the fact that students are responsible for their own learning as well. And that process of self-assessment leads to them critically thinking about their work and reflection on their work and really helps the learning process. So thanks for those comments. Let's turn towards uh, professional learning. We know that teachers want to be continuing to develop the skills they need to do good formative assessment. How should district and school leaders be thinking about professional learning, particularly during this time of remote learning? I think the first thing in thinking about teacher professional development is to be clear about what it is you're trying to change. And so, for example, Right as now teachers are becoming, becoming more experts in distance learning methods, then professional development really takes the form of knowledge acquisition. They need to find out how to do this stuff. They need to find out what things work, what things don't work in online environments. Often the practices you've used successfully in a face-to-face -face environments just don't work as well online and vice versa. But I think it's also important to understand that a lot of professional development doesn't involve knowledge acquisition. It involves habit change. Let me take an example. Every teacher I've ever met knows the research on wait time. They know that when teachers ask questions, that they don't give the students enough time to think of an answer. But what is interesting is reminding teachers of this research seems to have almost no impact on their classroom practice. And I'd observed this for many years, and it wasn't about five years ago that I suddenly realized 
that I'd been getting professional development wrong for most teachers. For most experienced teachers, professional development is a process of habit change, not of knowledge acquisition. There's a lot of research on habit change. For example, in health education, we know that reminding smokers of the harmful effects of smoking doesn't actually change behaviors because it's not a knowledge problem, it's a habit problem. And I think that if district supervisors are going to be serious about helping teachers become more effective in their classrooms, then we have to think about how can we support teachers in changing classroom habits. And it's hard because habit change is always hard. One of the motivational uh, pieces for having them change their habits is when they see that that changed practice has an impact on their students. When they start to see that students have uh, a better chance of grasping the curriculum, of being able to demonstrate their competencies, then they're more likely to uh, change that habit and have that habit change in the classroom. Absolutely. But I think it's also... uh, only fair to acknowledge that sometimes you don't get that immediate feedback. And so I think one of the roles of district superintendents is to make send clear messages to teachers that we're in this for the long haul. I really like the comment on making sure that our messaging out to our schools and out to our, our teachers is that we're in this for the long run and that we'll continue to invest in your professional learning. It also says something about when I was referring to the, the teacher seeing the results, I really meant um, in the classroom situation. They are not and nor should they be um, as focused on the, the the student performance way up at the district level and those 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 patterns uh, year over year as far as how the students are are performing as a as a large group. What they're focusing on is the students that are in front of them every single day. And when they see that their children are starting to be able to demonstrate some of those math competencies that they've been working on based on some changes and habits that they're doing in the classroom, that's where they're motivated to continue. And of course, if every teacher is experiencing that success in every one of their classrooms, and we we average that up, of course, up at the district level, like you said, a year or two later, we're going to see that impact on, on the big... Uh, 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 district-wide results. I think that's right. But I think we also need to understand that sometimes the road is quite bumpy. So I don't know um, how many listeners to this have seen the Classroom Experiment TV show I did with the BBC some years ago, where I basically bullied some eighth-grade teachers into trying these techniques out with their students. And for the first few weeks, there was a lot of resistance amongst the students and amongst the teachers. And my hunch is that if we hadn't had the TV crew committed to being in there for the next 10 weeks, that a lot of teachers would have given up. And it was the fact that there was that external stimulus to keep going that made it such a success. You know, you'll get resistance when you try these techniques like picking students at random, like asking students to vote on solutions. Um, you know, this is uncomfortable for, for students as well as for teachers. And therefore, I think we have to be clear about why we're doing this. This is, this is the right thing to be doing. And, you know, if there's setbacks, we're not going to let those setbacks say, well, you know, it didn't work. Let's try something else. I just think we shouldn't paint too rosy a picture of this because this kind of change can be very uncomfortable. 
it sure can and it takes a long time and it takes teachers working together and when we see teachers working together in professional learning communities that is very focused based on high yield strategies that uh, the research is showing and we give them the opportunity to be able to really have those deep discussions and try things out on each other and go and visit each other's classrooms when they have an opportunity that's where we see them working through that bumpiness it's not going to be a straight line and as leaders we have to really help them uh, we have to show them that we're willing to uh, be along that journey with them. Are there effective and scalable models for teacher professional development that you're seeing? Yes. Um, well, in fact, that is um, the, the phrase that we've been using for the last 15 years with my colleagues, effective, scalable teacher professional development. Because one of the, the tragedies in education is there's, there's so much boutique research going on. And you hear people at the... Uh, American Educational Research Association conference talking about a project they've done with six teachers. And it's just not going to change a system with, you know, two million classrooms in the USA. Um, so what we've, what we've been working on is these, these notions of, of building-based teacher learning communities. The idea is that teachers commit to trying out new ideas to their group of peers. And they meet monthly to hold each other accountable. So they come back uh, in, a, in a month's time and somebody gets out the piece of paper on which the teacher promised what they were going to try out and asks the teacher how it went. And teachers have told us it was the fact that they promised their peers they were going to do this that made them prioritize this over everything else. So that was the model. It was developed in the USA and Canada. And most recently, we've had a large-scale randomized controlled trial where just agendas for these monthly meetings were sent to half of a sample of 140 high schools and the other half got the cash equivalent, like $500. And then we left the schools alone for two years. And then we looked at the exam results that the students got at the end of uh, 10th grade. And Basically, the evidence was that the students in the schools where the teachers were meeting monthly to hold each other accountable and make changes, they'd made 25% more progress over ninth and 10th grades than the students in the control group. And because the schools were allocated at random to either getting the materials or not, this seems like quite a, a powerful result. Dylan, thank you so much for contributing today. Senior leaders are working really hard right now to ensure continuity of learning in their jurisdictions. Your insights will not only be helpful today during this time of school closures, but also when students and teachers are coming back into their classrooms. Thanks to Dylan for joining our podcast and sharing with us his advice on how we can support formative assessment practices in our classrooms and in our schools. If you missed part one of our podcast with Dylan, you can find it on the Knowledge Hook Signature Leadership Series portal. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.